This is exactly right. I'm Sarah Iyer. And I'm Stephen Ray Morris. Hosts of the Purrcast. That's Purr with three R's. It's a podcast all about cats. We can't talk to cats, so we talk to people who know and love them. Each episode, we invite a fellow feline lover, comedians, celebrities, kitty caretakers, and animal artists, to name a few, and we gush with them about our favorite furry friends. Tune in to The Purrcast on Exactly Right Network for new episodes every Wednesday. Listen and subscribe to The Purrcast and all of Exactly Right's shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Right meow. This is Exactly Right. A note about statistics used this season on the fall line. In the period we discuss, 1978 to 1996, Grady Hospital was number one for infant abduction in the United States. This is confirmed in Nick Meck's report released in 2006, which covered most years pertinent to our cases. At the time of production, this report was the most up-to-date public material available on that specific ranking. Outside of the range, 1978 to 1996, another hospital may earn the designation of most kidnapped. All material relating to Grady's abductions refers to the years covered in the podcast. This is The Fall Line. myself for years with that question and to try to bring her back especially when she was when I I guess when it was first when it first happened because I guess I didn't know what state of mind I was in um for the baby shower she had received uh, two baby bags and always kept it one of them packed fully with formula and pampers and because I just knew they were coming to pick her up that week. Because I, I knew I wasn't no, you know, this is something I never did. This was out of character and and I was going to get caught. I knew it. And I thought I was going to get caught that week. And for, I guess maybe good six months that bag stayed in the hallway closet because I knew somebody was going to knock on the, on the door and say, hey, we heard you got this baby. Give her back. So I wanted to make sure that she was going to be well, okay on her way back to Florida. And she would have diapers and yes. formula? Yes. Ultimately, that day didn't come until she was 18? That's correct. 1991. 23 people are killed in a bus crash in Brunswick, Georgia, where Monica and Michael Bennett had disappeared just two years before. The Atlanta Braves make the World Series. And in Atlanta, Georgia, a woman named Sharice Felder steals a baby from Grady Memorial Hospital's maternity ward waiting room. That baby, Christopher Lewis, is the child of LaRonda Arnold, who is there to visit her own mother. They're giving birth just a month apart. Sharice Felder offers to watch Christopher while LaRonda visits. 
And when she returns, Christopher and Charisse have vanished. Apparently, at the time, there was question of whether LaRonda was telling the truth, both that she had a baby and that he had been kidnapped. We're not sure if she was accused of foul play by media or by rumor, but Lieutenant Danny Egan was assigned to the case and was interviewed by the Atlanta Constitution on July 2, 1991. He is quoted as saying, quote, I believe LaRonda Arnold. Her baby has been stolen. We have questioned several witnesses, some of whom may have seen a woman leave the hospital. I mean on the outside of the hospital, with that tiny baby. It's emotional. And that's why we're asking anyone who has seen some young woman who has just suddenly turned up with the new baby to call us. Kidnapping is worse than a homicide where there is no hope. This is a lot more intense. You don't know the intentions of this kidnapper, and you have just a few hours to do something about it. The suspect, then unidentified, was described as a medium-complected black woman of around 18. She was about 5'3 and heavy set and wore light wash jeans and a brightly colored blouse. The story barely had time to hit local news. The woman's mother showed up at Grady the next day, her daughter Charisse in tow. She said they'd come to return the baby. Christopher Lewis had been missing for less than 24 hours. He was still dressed in the clothes he'd worn at his disappearance. A yellow set of pajamas and white booties with bells on the toes. The story rapidly filtered out of the news cycle, but not before a few guesses could be made as to why Cherise had taken the child. The Atlanta Constitution offered this quote from the APD, quote, She admitted she took the baby but didn't really say why, Sergeant King told us. I guess she wanted a baby. At least that much seems obvious. Cherise took the baby home to her mother's house, but why? In July of 1991, Charisse was almost 20. She wasn't married and didn't have a live-in partner. She may have had a boyfriend, but there's no mention of that information anywhere. We cannot assume heterosexuality, though most of the women who abduct babies are romantically involved with men when they commit their crimes. They may feel pressure to keep a male partner through a child's birth or to produce a baby after an announced pregnancy that may or may not have at one time been real. They may even have lost a pregnancy. That is a common contributing factor. According to Gloria Williams, the woman who kidnapped Kamaya Mobley in 1998 and who you heard at the top of the episode, that was her reason. Her family had already prepared and thrown her a shower. She and her husband had painted a room in their home. She was actually driving around with a baby's car seat in the back of her car. One night... She got on the highway and began driving. She didn't stop until she reached a hospital in Florida. And Kamaya Mobley was missing until 2017. The major factor that separated Sharice Felder and Gloria Williams was the approach. Sharice, unable to make it onto the ward itself, just hung around the waiting room in the snack bar. She was disorganized. Even if she had made it onto the ward, she didn't display the level of preparedness we saw in Louise Lett, who brought an Avon bag large enough to fit a baby, or in Lisa Morris, who stalked on a green for a week before choosing to strike. Charisse's mother turned her in, but we suspect that if she hadn't, law enforcement would eventually have caught up with her. She was not a planner. By contrast, Gloria Williams made several strategic choices which made her abduction of Kamaya Mobley so frighteningly successful. 
Gloria was able to seamlessly blend Kamaya into her family and to care with her with confidence. We spoke to Dr. Jenny Johnson, a forensic psychologist, about kidnappers and their motivations and possible mindsets. So these are people who, not always, but but oftentimes, you know, are with it enough to be able to plan where to get a baby. Um, sometimes they may visit nurseries or ma- uh, maternity units to get a lay of the land if they're stealing them from a maternity unit. Oftentimes they'll impersonate like nurse or healthcare professionals. They're, you know, with it enough to be able to make those plans, put those skills together to be able to impersonate staff at a hospital, for example. And a lot of the times these people can demonstrate some capability to provide for the baby once the abduction occurs, um, particularly those who are kidnapping the baby for their own personal gain, so for, for their own desire to care for a baby or to keep their partner there within their own, I guess, emotional capabilities, the fact that they were willing to steal a baby. But but yeah, so that, so oftentimes people might think, oh, someone has to be crazy in order to do something like this. But these people can be relatively well-functioning in community while, you know, also being willing to do something like this. Gloria Williams' approach was common among organized hospital kidnappers. She acquired scrubs and she passed herself off as a healthcare worker. According to the medical journal article Offense Characteristics, the approaches vary, but that impersonation is most common and also hinges on the kidnapper's ability to seem professional, kind, and calm. And that bit is important because it's quite different from the the outside-the-hospital kidnapping scenarios we see today, where women are increasingly likely to use force, sometimes even physically attacking expectant mothers and forcefully removing preterm babies from the womb. Of the 199 non-family infant abductions that NICMEC recorded between 83 and 2000, 30 were violent. Six of those involved forced C-sections performed by the perpetrator. When women attack other women outside of a medical setting, they're not concerned with quiet escapes. Sometimes they're not concerned with the mother's life and don't want to leave witnesses. In 2003, NICMEC reported that one-third of home abductions included violence, and that number has been on the rise ever since. If abductors actually remove women to another location, their likelihood of survival lessens. The report includes a particularly disturbing illustration of this. And sensitive listeners may want to skip ahead for the next five minutes or so, because we're going to include more detail of the kind of attacks that have occurred. Without including identifying details, Nick Mac described a kidnapper who, after forcing her victim into a car and driving her to a rural field, then performed a C-section with a set of car keys. This kind of brutality is difficult to imagine, but it's not the only example. You may have heard of cases like those of Tika Adams, who was in her third trimester when a woman named Veronica Deramus convinced her to come to her apartment. In December of 2009, Veronica offered Tika free baby gear, and Tika, who was temporarily homeless and desperate to prepare for her daughter's arrival, couldn't pass the offer up. The Washington Post describes how this went down. It seems that Veronica was actually stalking Tika and had been for some time. For days, she called Tika's phone, and when the pregnant woman finally answered, identified herself as a representative of a charity who helped mothers in need. She invited Tika to come by and pick up supplies. Tika, who was 29, had just gotten married, but she and her new husband were living apart. She in a residential home for expectant mothers and he in a treatment program. 
The Post reports Tika's recollection of that last conversation before she went to meet Veronica. Her husband, PJ, was uneasy with the idea. He told her, quote, don't get in a car with a stranger. He asked why Veronica couldn't bring the items to her. Tika told the Post that she dismissed his worries. She thought the woman sounded nice, very official, very professional. In an NBC interview, Tika describes visiting Veronica's Maryland apartment. Veronica was odd from the get-go, muttering and pacing as Tika nervously ate the lunch the woman had prepared. She was on guard but dismissed her feelings, right up until Veronica grabbed a fire poker from its stand and cracked it across Tika's skull. She beat Tika until the kitchen was splattered in blood, so much so that, according to Tika, Veronica became disturbed. Not by the violence, but by the mess. Tika told NBC, quote, She started cleaning the walls in her apartment, and she kept pacing the floor, talking about how she couldn't have blood in her house because her son was coming home, and she wouldn't know how to explain it to her son. And I'm hearing all this, but I'm just like laying there because I don't want her to kill me. Simple as that. Tika's ordeal was far from over. Over the next three days, Veronica locked her in a room in the apartment, bound her with duct tape, and shut the windows tight. It was so dim that, the Washington Post reports, Tika couldn't tell whether it was day or night. Veronica slept next to her on the floor, shifting between concern and anger. She continually played what the Post described as bootleg DVDs of popular movies like Precious, ostensibly to muffle any noises that Tika might make. On the day that she finally decided to attempt a home C-section, Veronica put in a recording of a Michael Jackson tour video. The Post reports that Tika was bound and gagged and that, with laughing tour dancers in the background, she watched Veronica approach her with a box cutter. Veronica sliced Tika's abdomen open, cutting through her uterus and bladder, and she couldn't figure out how to remove the baby from Tika's womb. When Tika's moans became louder and louder, Veronica finally gave up. She eventually fell asleep on the floor next to her captive. When Tika managed to escape the apartment the next day, she begged a neighbor for help. Veronica was right on her trail, screaming about a misunderstanding and dragging Tika back toward the apartment. In answer, Tika showed the man what lay beneath her shirt, a bloody mess with her organs exposed. Unbelievably, Tika and her daughter, Miracle, survived the ordeal. Other women, though, were less lucky. Though a rare crime, fetal abductions are on the rise. Most of the recorded cases occurred after 2000, when hospital security measures had increased. Of those 20 cases, only 4 of the women and 11 of the infants survived. The deaths were brutal, and in the cases covered in the list, none remain unsolved. Most abductors were sentenced to life in prison, and one received the death penalty. One committed suicide after sentencing. Though the method of fetal abduction is starkly different, the demographic of the perpetrators still fits the basic profile laid out by NICMEC in 2003 when they analyzed hospital abductors. We asked Dr. Johnson whether there were any major differences in hospital abductors and those who abducted outside of hospitals, especially fetal abductions. Yeah, I don't think the process, if that makes sense, is any different. I think that perhaps because the access is even more limited, it's going to be harder to walk into someone's house and steal a baby. It's going to be harder to um, walk into a hospital and steal a baby. 
they're, they're unable to have those means, but the desperation is still there. And so perhaps that desperation goes on even longer than it might have if they'd had access. Racial demographics are interesting. In her study of non-familial infant abductions, Lisa Strollman explained, quote, offenders are most frequently either Caucasian or African-American. When compared to the general population, though, African-American and Hispanic offenders are more heavily represented, end quote. NCMEC data bears this out. From 1965 till 2018, the numbers for African-American abductors hovers around 42%. Most non-familial abductions are intraracial, and 61% of the victims are Black or Hispanic. But abductors who kidnap outside of their own race are much more likely to be white. And now is a good time to tell you, there is an eighth Grady baby. We chose not to include him in the main narrative as he was not kidnapped from or because of his stay at the hospital. He also falls outside of the infant category as he was eight months old at the time of his abduction. Like all the other babies in our story, Elijah Evans is African-American. But unlike the other women, his kidnapper was white. She was also the only abductor to use force. In October of 1999, Elijah's mother, Natalie, took her son to Grady for treatment. He developed a sinus infection and needed antibiotics. She took a bus back to her southwest Atlanta neighborhood, and it was fairly late at night, and the streets were mostly empty. On her walk home from the bus stop, she was accosted by a 17-year-old who we've chosen to call Jennifer. Although her name was released to the media, we'll continue our plan of assigning pseudonyms to minors here. Jennifer had been on the bus with her, but Natalie hadn't paid her much attention. The girl, around her own age, was nondescript. Some news reports describe Jennifer as a stranger to Natalie, but others say she was actually a casual acquaintance, someone who had been staying in the neighborhood for a little while. Either way, Natalie had no reason to be afraid. But after the bus doors closed and the driver pulled away, Jennifer leveled a handgun on Natalie and demanded that she hand over Elijah. If Natalie didn't, she'd kill them both. Natalie froze. In that moment, Jennifer yanked Elijah from his mother's arms and then ran into the wooded lot that backed up onto the row of little houses. There was no one around to help. The few houses that were in the neighborhood were surrounded by vacant lots. Crime was high and Natalie was used to being careful, but her guard hadn't been up. Natalie ran. She was in her own house in moments. Once she managed to explain what had happened, her parents, Willie and Elizabeth Yarborough, called 911. We don't have reports of how APD handled this abduction, but we assume they started in the immediate area surrounding Natalie's home. In most cases, that would have been the best approach. Law enforcement couldn't have known that Jennifer had already fled to Tennessee. Jennifer was a native of a little town called Dutchard, about 45 minutes from Chattanooga. An AJC article from the time of the kidnapping described it as an area mostly made up of highway exits and fast food restaurants. She'd been well-behaved as a preteen, but was described as getting wild around the age of 14. Local news reports included interviews with her softball coach, who described her as a typical teenager, but also noted she'd begun to get in trouble. According to the AJC, Jennifer had run away on multiple occasions and might have fled the Detroit area for Atlanta in order to avoid an arrest warrant. The article quotes Detroit Police Chief Summer as saying, quote, 
This kid's been running away since she was 14 years old. There was no discussion of what Jennifer might have been running from or what problems she faced. There was, however, room for a quote from her softball coach who said she was the only player on the team to wear makeup to practice. In Atlanta, she was using a fake name, Shanice Price, presumably to avoid notice by Tennessee law enforcement who may have been looking for her. We're not sure why Jennifer chose Atlanta, but a few clues concerning her motivation to kidnap Elijah have become apparent. It seems that, like many other abductors, Jennifer had at one time been pregnant. Her long-distance boyfriend still thought she was. Was she hiding out in Atlanta during the months when it would have been obvious that she was no longer pregnant? Whatever her reason, she kidnapped Elijah on a Wednesday evening. By Thursday night, she was back in Tennessee, claiming the eighth-month-old to be her own. It's hard to imagine that he could have been passed off as just a few weeks old. And that suspicion seems to have struck her own family. Jennifer was actually turned in by her aunt, who called Atlanta police to report her niece had arrived back in Tennessee with an infant too old to be the newborn she claimed him to be. The aunt hadn't heard of Elijah's case. News hadn't spread beyond Atlanta at that point, but police were easily able to match up the baby's description to missing Elijah Evans. By Saturday evening, Jennifer was in custody and in the process of being extradited to Atlanta, and Natalie and her family were in Detchard. Elijah was being watched over by the staff of the city hall. Everyone had heard the story by then. Natalie and her family gave several interviews to local and national news media, thanking God and the two police forces for Elijah's safe return. The baby is described as being in good health despite a mild cold and a little cranky from teething but otherwise fine. Jennifer was prosecuted for her crimes, serving time and then moving back to Tennessee, where she raised a family. Elijah grew up in Atlanta, and his mother is still here, too. The very last news reports quote police as saying that they don't know why Jennifer kidnapped Elijah. But based on NCMEC demographic studies, the answer is right in front of them. Jennifer matches many of the characteristics of the typical infant abductor. One in particular stands out. NCMEC says that the kidnappers exhibit compulsive behavior and most often rely on manipulation, lying, and deception. Of the identified kidnappers we've discussed, at least four have faced charges of forgery. They've given false names to police and committed related crimes, with check forgery being the most common denominator. Bad checks are a close second. Louise Lett, Shantae's abductor, even managed a complex fraud involving airline tickets. Some of the abductors, like Jennifer, have used aliases. All in all, there seems to be a lot of pretending. Lots of being someone else. When we spoke to Dr. Jenny Johnson, we asked her to reflect on these behaviors. I think that for someone whose mind goes to the idea that stealing a baby is even an option um, and even a viable option, I think that it makes sense that they would have either in the past or in the future engaged in other types of behaviors of deceit or, you know, manipulation or even just lying. I think that it's kind of all in the same realm. Of course, stealing a baby is a little different than writing a bad check, but um, it's all kind of in that same idea of, of seeing their own needs as more important than, than that of society around them. Whether they're worried about maintaining a relationship or pleasing a partner, 
time seems to play a major role in the decision to kidnap babies. One might think that kidnapping is the desperate alternative to adoption or fertility treatments, which are often prohibitively expensive, but those paths take time, and by the time an abductor is on the hunt for a child, that is the last thing she has. She has often told friends and family and a partner about an impending birth, and will play out the pregnancy until the last possible moment, putting off the repercussions of the falsehood until she is out of options. This is clearly seen in the story of our final Grady baby, a newborn boy we call Baby Y. His name and the name of his juvenile mother were kept out of the press. His kidnapper, only 15, was tried as an adult, and her name was released to media, but we've chosen to omit that here. After all, she still lives in Atlanta. Like all the other abductors, she did not respond to our interview requests. With the event 22 years in the past, the only references to the crime must be dug out of news archives, and we can't blame her for wanting to keep it that way. But this story is important, and we need to tell it. Because as of spring of 2018, Baby Y was the last baby to be abducted from Grady. After his kidnapping, security measures finally and seriously changed. Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service that finds and delivers clothes, shoes, and accessories to fit your body, budget, and lifestyle. My first Stitch Fix blew me away. I had a lot of notes for my stylist, and I have a strong sense of style, with a heavy emphasis on retro fashion and dark colors. My stylist choices were absolutely amazing, especially a fitted wine-colored pencil skirt that's already become a wardrobe staple. She was able to find clothes in the right length, too. Not an easy feat when your client is 5'11". I also love that I got a few items I wouldn't have picked for myself, like a drape jacket with a faux fur collar. I kept every single piece for my box and can't wait to see what my stylist chooses in January. Stitch Fix can help you find your new favorite piece of clothing. Just go to stitchfix.com fall and tell them your sizes, what styles you like, and how much you want to spend on each item. You'll be paired with your very own personal stylist who will handpick five items to send right to your door. Then try them on, pay only for what you love, and return the rest. Shipping, exchanges, and returns are always free. There's no subscription required. You can sign up to receive scheduled shipments or get your fix whenever you want. Stitch Fix's styling fee is only $20, which is applied toward anything you keep from your shipment. Get started now at stitchfix.com fall, and you'll get an extra 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com fall to get started today. stitchfix.com fall. Madison Reed is hair color reinvented, giving you gorgeous salon quality color delivered to your door for less than $25. Remember, it's 2019 now. You don't have to choose between outdated box color or the time and expense of a salon. Crafted in Italy by master colorists, Madison Reed is professional hair color you can easily do at home. It's multi-tonal, ammonia-free, and made with ingredients that you can feel good about. I have two careers and a family, and Madison Reed has become my lifesaver. I don't have to give up my salon quality color. In fact, 
I can have it shipped straight to my home, but I also don't have to give up my time. Find your perfect shade from Madison Reed. Get an expert color consultation or take the fun color quiz at madison-reed.com. The Fall Line listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with promo code FALLLINE. That's F-A-L-L-L-I-N-E. Promo code FALLLINE at madison-reed.com. You can also visit madison-reed.com slash the fall line. What if your worst nightmare was real? In Mind's Eye, the first fiction podcast from the Parcast Network, homicide detective Kate McClay is having horrifying dreams. The only thing that can stop it? Catching a serial killer. Mind's Eye is a tense thriller, perfect for listeners of the fall line of true crime podcast readers of mystery novels, and lovers of audio dramas like Limetown and Homecoming. Plagued by nightmares, homicide detective Kate McClay enlists her radio journalist husband to help get to the bottom of her horrifying dreams and, perhaps, solve a murder in the process. In her search for an end to her nightmares, Kate fights against psychology, science, her own family, and even a serial killer. Mind's Eye is brought to you from ParCast, the storytelling team behind hit shows like Serial Killers, Cults, and Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. This six-episode psychological thriller premiered December 24th and releases new episodes on Mondays. In Mind's Eye, listeners will discover that the scariest monsters are those hiding in our own minds. Listen today by searching and subscribing to Mind's Eye wherever you listen to podcasts. That's M-I-N-D apostrophe S space E-Y-E. Or visit parcast.com slash mind's eye to start listening now. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash mind's eye to listen now. It was June of 1996, less than a month before Atlanta would host the Summer Olympics in a city that had been sanitized, beautified, and reimagined. It was five weeks before the bombing in Centennial Park and all the chaos that followed. Many downtown residents had been displaced when the Atlanta Housing Authority tore down Techwood homes in preparation for the Olympics. This was considered necessary as the housing project was one of the first landmarks visitors could see when they drove in on I-75. Most Techwood residents couldn't afford the new mixed-price housing that replaced the project, and they scattered to Carver, to Capitol, to Harris. Harris, that's where Alexis lived in the summer of 1996, when she decided to take a bus to Grady Memorial. When you imagine the kind of teenager who'd take a baby, you wouldn't picture Alexis. She hadn't had any trouble with law enforcement. A friend of the family described her as a sweet, quiet girl who had plenty of problems at home and who preferred to spend time at her boyfriend's house, where things were more stable. Alexis had not had an easy life, and the family friend didn't want to get too specific, but it seems that most of her problems originated with her own relatives. We don't know why she told her boyfriend that she was pregnant, but that's the story his family heard too. She was a small, slight young woman, and they had a hard time imagining that she could be carrying a child. Then again, they didn't have reason to doubt her. Eventually, there was no way around it. Alexis needed to produce a baby. 
Her relationship wasn't in trouble, but the lie had gotten too big. Like the six abductors before her, she made her way to Grady. Alexis may have been the most brazen of them all. She entered the maternity ward, and she discovered a doctor and a baby boy upon whom he'd just performed a circumcision. She told that doctor that she was the baby's mother. After receiving aftercare instructions for the circumcision, she took the infant and simply walked off the ward. And that lie held. When the kidnapping was reported to police, they originally said that the biological mother of the baby, also a juvenile, had been the one to remove him from the ward without authorization. You see, that biological mother was in the foster care system herself. The AJC reported that there was no relationship between Alexis and this juvenile mother. As far as the police knew, it was a pure crime of opportunity. They reported, quote, the child's mother, who is 17, is in the custody of Fulton County Department of Family and Children's Services, said the spokeswoman Sharika Osorio. Quote, we hadn't even had time to think about what we were going to do about the baby when this all happened. Alexis took the two-day-old infant back to her apartment at Harris Homes. It's unclear what occurred that day. But by that evening, her mother had called police to report the infant's presence in the house. According to the AJC, Alexis told her mother that she'd found the baby in downtown Atlanta. And that's the story she stuck with, even after she was arrested. Before police could get a full statement from her, Alexis actually escaped custody and went on the run. APD declined to elaborate on how the teenager managed it, but she was gone for two days. She was eventually found by a police informant who, under the ruse of taking her somewhere safe, got her into a car. Atlanta police were then alerted and she was taken to Juvenile Hall. There, Alexis told a strange tale. She began with the assertion that she'd found the baby, but then moved into a story that sounds like our modern understanding of how trafficking works that a teenage boy and girl, both of whom were named in media reports, had forced her to steal the baby. She said that she was driven to the hospital at gunpoint and told that she'd be shot if she didn't retrieve an infant. It took the police weeks to unravel the story and finally prove it false. At this point, Alexis was named in the paper and was eventually tried as an adult for the kidnapping. An APD officer was quoted as saying, We've discovered that this little girl is a chronic liar and deceitful for one so young. And that's indicative of the kind of press she received. That statement, though, doesn't jibe with the story we got from those who actually knew her. She was obviously troubled, telling both neighbors and friends that she was pregnant and then committing to a kidnapping to keep the story going. But why? We asked Dr. Jenny Johnson to reflect on the relationship between motivation and mental health. I think that, you know, it's easy to just boil down and say, oh, they must be a terrible person or, oh, they must be a psychopath. Like kind of what our always go-to is when you do something terrible. But there really could be a lot of reasons that someone would do this. And it's a lot more complex. You know, for someone who may be mentally ill, if it's someone that is acting on a delusion, 
um, or, you know, a, a false belief because of their psychosis um, or even a grieving mother. You know, these can be a lot more complex. It could be that they believe they can care better for the infant. It could be that they're, they're wanting to keep their partner around. Um, it could be that they're not fully in touch with reality. And whether that's some sort of a dissociation in that desire for the baby or whether because they are actively psychotic, it could also be, you know, some kind of untreated mental health needs you know, related to trauma from losing a baby or, you know, the intense anxiety of potentially losing a partner or some kind of personality disorder that's really affecting the way that they interact with others and, and think about things. So in everyday life, people find inappropriate or unsafe ways to meet psychological needs. So I think we can all think of at least one person in our life that that does something really weird or bizarre or even concerning in order to meet some kind of psychological need that they have. And unfortunately, this is the way that some of these people have chosen to meet that need. You know, it's egregious and it's, it's intense, but, you know, it, it often will come from deeper down. Now, not always, but, but oftentimes deeper down and a lot more complex issue going on with with why they you know want that baby um, it doesn't make it okay it doesn't make it right and trying to understand why someone does it doesn't excuse the behavior but i do think that there's a lot more to it than simply like good and bad for, for a lot of these cases viewed from afar alexis's choices fit the common pattern and line up almost perfectly with studies on abductor motivations she doesn't however show the kind of planning that most hospital abductors do it seems that the older the kidnapper, the more sophisticated their approach. Alexis impersonated the child's mother, and we've seen that before when Janquia Brooks' teenage kidnapper first tried to take a baby, but it's not the most common scenario. Carlina White, and her name might be familiar to you as there was a movie made about her life, was taken by a woman dressed in scrubs. In fact, she sat with Carlina's parents and actually comforted them as the baby was admitted to the hospital at five days old for a fever. And as soon as she had a chance, Anne Petway took Carlina and disappeared. Petway and Williams, sophisticated kidnappers, were significantly older than most of the Grady abductors. Perhaps it's not a surprise that these sophisticated adult kidnappers are also the most successful. Raymond has never been recovered, and it took Carlina and Kamaya until adulthood to discover their true identities. Grown women plan. Across the board, the teenage kidnappers of Grady babies snatched and ran, right back home to their parents' houses or to the houses of friends. There was no way to truly hide their crimes. Nickmack describes kidnappers as likely being from the area where they abduct, and the Grady disappearances support that. But the story of Gloria Williams gives us pause. She purposefully drove out of state to commit her crime, which made her incredibly hard to track. So would it make sense that the most successful kidnappers might do the same? Even if they were from Georgia, taking the babies over state lines would exponentially increase their chance of success. We've learned that media and the public play vital roles in locating these children, but when the abductions only make the local news... A Georgia woman who was fled to, say, Alabama or North Carolina might just be safe. We've talked about these kidnappers' motivations, but we haven't spent much time considering how they deal, emotionally or practically, with their crimes. When Gloria Williams was sentenced in the kidnapping of Kamaya Mobley, she addressed this. Here's an excerpt from the statement she gave before the court. That's when I told her. Uh, I started crying, and 
she was like, what's wrong? I said, sit down. I have to tell you something. I said, sit down. I have to tell you something. And uh, we were outside on the front porch. And uh, I told her, I said, you're not my daughter. I said, I took you a long time ago. And uh, she didn't understand. She like talking about, you know. And uh, I guess when I started crying, that's when she, you know, like, you know, this is not mom. I, this is not her. Something's wrong. Something's truly wrong. And um, it was just too much. I, and I told her then, and she still didn't believe me. And um, I got on the phone and I, I punched in some, you know, websites, I guess. And um, and I showed her. She said, that doesn't look like me. And I said, yeah, that's you. Miss Mobley. Mistaken. I wanted to apologize to you when you were in South Carolina. I pray every day, every day. For the good Lord to renew your hearts, renew your minds, and to heal your hearts, and to give you the peace and joy that comes from knowing his word. I don't, I can't explain where I was back then, 20 years ago. I know I wronged you. And I'm so sorry. So many days, so many days, so many days, so many days. I just want to pick that child up and say, come on, let's get in this car and go. I just couldn't. I couldn't. I never, when I left Jacksonville, I didn't look back. I didn't know what you went through. I could only imagine what you went through. I can only imagine that I never in my life, never in my life meant to hurt you, meant to hurt either one of you. God knows I didn't. God knows my heart. But I did hurt you. And for that, I'm so sorry. And I know I can't give you back to 18 years. I know that if I could, I would. If I could give you a new heart, Miss Mobley, I would. If I can give you a new heart, Mr. Aiken, I would. But I can't do that. I don't have the, the power or the authority to do it. I know you hate me right now. And I know you've heard what people said about me. I done something wrong. And this is probably the only thing I've ever done wrong. And I hope one day, I hope one day that you can ever find it in your heart to forgive me.
for what I've done to y'all. I don't. I don't know what more to say. But I wanted I wanted to reach out to you before this. Because I know you was hurting and I know you wanted answers. You know, I just kind of prayed that you'd come down to the jailhouse to, to see me or, or whatever, to ask. Because I would have told you, even though my attorneys told me not to. I think if you had come that far, I would have had to tell you. I'm so sorry. And I tell you, I I hurt you. I hurt Mr. Aiken and your families. And for that I I'm deeply sorry. I'm so sorry. Mrs. Williams, do you acknowledge that um Combined Mobley, Alexis has been hurt through the situation as well? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That statement is little comfort to Shannara Mobley, the mother of Kamaya. When she gave her victim impact statement, she said Gloria deserved the death penalty for her crimes. And she described the immense loss she'd experienced, how she'd become suicidal, how the kidnapping had totally shifted her personality and perspective on the world. It's hard to guess as to how much of this pain Gloria Williams recognizes and how much responsibility she truly assumes. Donna Green, the mother of Raymond, kidnapped in 1978, has spent a lot of time thinking about Lisa Morris, the woman who stalked her and stole her son. She discussed her feelings in an interview with my co-host. I was angry at Lisa for a long time, um, very angry at her. And I do think about her. I, 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 I used to imagine that maybe she would die and on her deathbed tell the truth. You know, uh, did she still have him? Because according to what the police told me back then, that they believe he was sold overseas. So, um, but I was very angry at her for, for tricking me, and and um, I was angry at myself for being naive, but. Yeah, I, I thought about her, but you know, over the years, I've forgiven her. I've forgiven her, and I didn't do that for her. I did that for me, because me being angry at her, it festered in me, and she's not worth that for me. So I, I, I forgave her, and, and I pray that one day, if she's still alive, that she she whatever she know if she gave gave Raymond away or whatever, did she tell the truth? Did somebody tell the truth? Would you say that was a conscious decision on your part to forgive her, or do you think it happened over a period of years? It definitely happened over a period of years. Um because all I went through, I went through it because of her. So to me, forgiving her was um it wasn't even an option. I I wanted the worst for her in the worst way because she took something that was, she took a jewel from me. So 
it, over, but over the years and, and the Lord working with my heart and working on my mind, you know, and the things that I've been through, I understand that, um, the depths of forgiveness and what it does to you. Because when I forgave her, it released me and I was able to be free to live a life not, not chained down. He broke those chains that had me bound because me angry at her and hating her in my heart. It was just black for that hate, even though you seen one thing on the outside. But on the inside, it was something else going on totally. So because me hating her made me also not trust myself. So I released that. And, and it took it took, it took time, took prayer. But I, I have peace with her today. Donna is an incredibly resilient woman, but not all parents manage this level of resolve and strength. And we can't expect them to. Donna's own husband, Raymond Sr., never truly dealt with the loss of his son. Donna describes how Raymond Sr., fragile and in and out of addiction, managed the long-term effects of his son's disappearance. Go nowhere or do anything. He didn't trust anybody. Um, they always had to be with me or him. He was definitely um, very, very connected and close to them but I know all that came from because I was the same way you know my kids told me one time it's like you smothering us like you just on the inside of us won't let us breathe but I was coming from a place I was coming from a place so I didn't know how to if they went to the store in my imagination if they hadn't got if they was five minutes late all kind of stuff is in my mind you know and I still have to deal with that Today on some things, if I call a few times and they don't answer. Then you know, I, my daughter didn't, didn't answer one day, and I called police and asked them would they check the road. She was like, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> you know, but that's just stuff that I, I deal with. You know, I'm, I'm better with it. And Raymond, he really didn't get better with it. He always had different things. It was always a bad scenario for him. You know, so we deal with it the best we can. Kidnappers themselves have faced wide and varying consequences. Many women are institutionalized for weeks or months before trial or sentencing. For the nonviolent offenders, as all of the hospital kidnappers were, there is no standard punishment. One juvenile is tried as such, and another is tried as an adult. Louise Lett, Shantae's kidnapper, served five years, and some of that time was for forgery of the birth certificate. Carlina White's abductor is serving 12 years, and at the time of this podcast publication, Gloria Williams, Kamaya's kidnapper, had just been sentenced to 18 years in prison. The hospitals responsible for the baby's safety have also dealt with repercussions. We told you about Grady's payout to Tavish Sutton's mother, who received $600,000. Kamaya Mobley's family won $750,000 in a similar suit, and Carlina White's parents won the same amount. That's a big hit, and the result has been a major overhaul of hospital security procedures, systems, and drills. Staff regularly participate in code pink rehearsals to assure that everyone on shift understands the steps that should be taken if an infant is abducted, with the goal being to stop the kidnapper before the infant is missing. That is, when the child is still on hospital premises. As early as 1995, some hospitals were installing maternity ward systems that cost upward of $50,000 and included swiveling cameras, alarm bells, and extra security personnel to oversee them. 
Now, procedures are even more stringent. Families all wear security bracelets that both confirm identity and, in the case of infants, contain security sensors that will trigger alarm bells. The most advanced systems include GPS trackers that will help security and police locate stolen babies as they move through the hospital and beyond. Elevator controls, systems to automatically lock down floors, and tamper-resistant bracelets are now the norm. Still, drills continue to show the weakness in security protocols. Not because hospitals aren't preparing. Rather, it's impossible to imagine every possible scenario that might occur. That's why repeated practice runs are so important. Hospitals and law enforcement cannot underestimate the motivation of a kidnapper and that kidnapper's ability to zero in on the most vulnerable hospitals, county facilities that serve uninsured populations. Security systems are obviously essential, but so are adequate staff and enough support for nurses and solutions in place before the problems occur. And with hospitals like Grady facing regular, serious budget cuts, how will this be possible? Grady itself has not suffered an abduction since Alexis stole that baby boy in 1996. But nationwide, the crime still occurs, and NCMEC continues to offer tips in order to minimize these abductions. They recommend that you take a picture of your baby within two hours of birth, and that you request a copy of the footprints that the hospital generally produces for its own records. In addition, they caution that you should always have the baby in your line of sight, even when you're using the bathroom. You should also be careful when you make birth announcements. Include minimal information and don't put them online. Everyone, hospitals, parents, NICMEC, is working to make things better. Because at the heart of the thing, we're talking about women and infants at their absolutely most vulnerable, who deserve to have and believe in our protection. Angeline Hartman director of digital and broadcast media at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, underlined how vital safety in hospitals is when she spoke to us about all the work that NICMEC, hospitals, and other organizations have done to improve situations for all mothers and babies. I remember doing an interview, I remember doing an interview about the recovery of Kamaya Mobley. And um, the reporter asked me to kind of put it in perspective. And I thought, hospitals are supposed to be a safe place. Think about that. A mother has just given birth. And this is a beautiful moment that she's sharing with her newborn baby and her family. And to think that someone could come into a hospital, into that safe zone, and actually abduct a baby. Um, and it was happening all that time back then. That's, that's just horrifying to think about. So now to hear that there were zero abductions at a healthcare facility last year, that's, that's amazing to me. But it's really, really turned around. But, you know, I just think you could have just imagined, anyone can imagine it. And you don't have to be a mother to, to, to imagine that feeling. For mothers... Across the country, sure, they know. It doesn't take a lot for any mother to remember that moment. You know, it's so emotional. And, I mean, even now, just now, I, I'm sorry. I'm just thinking about it, you know, as a mother myself. I cannot imagine what that would be like. That is a precious, beautiful time 
So it's everybody's job, not just the hospitals. It's everybody's job to do whatever it takes to make sure that families are safe, most especially infants in hospitals. If you have any information on the so-called Lisa Morris who kidnapped Raymond Green in 1978, or on the unnamed woman who abducted Tavish Sutton in 1993, we urge you to contact Atlanta police. You can reach them at 404-546-4235. Next time on the last episode of the season, Lost and Found. We hope you'll join us then. From January 1st, 1976, through the end of March, 1977, the Metro Detroit area was the site of nine child murders. Three of those cases are resolved, but the other six cases remain open, with most of these deaths attributed to the as-yet-unidentified Oakland County child killer. Don't Talk to Strangers is a long-form podcast focused on this series of unresolved child murders. Join us as we explore the stories of these young victims, the impact on their families and the community, and what happened to the investigation into these crimes. Subscribe to Don't Talk to Strangers on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher. <laughs>